When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Whenever we talk about kind of like, oh, let's solve problems in our own backyard first. I understand that and I understand why people feel that way. But for me, when you're thinking about equality or social justice or the way the world should look, for me, we're all human beings. Why does it matter where you were born? That is Morgan Kogel, the CEO of One Girl. And this is episode 194 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. G'day and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thanks for being here. Welcome. Here we are again. It's another beautiful week. Episode 194 of this show. And it is with Morgan Kogel. You can find her on Twitter, Morgan, K-O-E-G-E-L, at Morgan, K-O-E-G-E-L. She's the CEO of One Girl, onegirl.org.au. Tell you a little bit more about Morgan in just a moment. Welcome to you. If you're new, hey, hi, how you doing? I'm Osher. I sometimes count roses on the television. I'm sometimes on the radio in the morning in Brisbane. I'm always on the radio on a Sunday night around Australia. And every week I'm in your phone doing a podcast. And here we are. We've done 193 other episodes and welcome. Glad you're here. What a week. What a week. Uh, yeah. Started out with a threat of nuclear war. Ended with Nazis on the streets. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> Hope you're okay, wherever you are. A uh, lot of hate in the, a uh, lot of hate in the world at the moment. A lot of, lot of anger, a lot of anger and fear. Hate's just fear. Let's be honest. Hate is just fear. It's just fear of the unknown. It's just fear of something you don't understand. And there's a lot of it happening at the moment. And uh, what we need now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing with. There's just too little of. I'm singing a hell back hell. <laughs> I'm singing a Burt Bacharach song. Yes, I am. Um, in Australia, we're currently staring down the barrel of a same-sex marriage debate in the public forum, and it's shit. It's shit because it's not a proper election. It's it's like a opinion poll done by the Post, and because it's not a proper election here in Australia, it's not governed by the usual Australian Electoral Commission standards, particularly around advertising. So anyone can print anything that they fucking want, and it's fair to say that it's already there's already some pretty vile stuff out there. Um, some pretty horrible things out there. If you feel if you feel icky about same sex marriage, and you're thinking, "Oh, I don't," I'm afraid to vote yes. I'll just vote no because I want things to stay the same. Let me see if I can find a reframe for you, because reframes always help. Let's say, let's say, for example, we, we were doing a plebiscite. A plebiscite. Here we go. What if we're doing a plebiscite on circumcision? Okay. The act of cutting off a, a male human child's foreskin. It's a very private, very personal choice that's made by the parents of a male child. Sometimes for ancient religious reasons. Sometimes just because, well, you are, your father was, so your son will be too. Or your husband is, your dad was, and your son will be too. But more importantly... The person that's having it done to them has zero say in the matter. They're a baby. They have no choice. I'm going to draw a long bow here. Um, it's kind of the same with sexuality because you have no say in how you're wired. You've got no say in how you come out. You've got no say. When you pop into the world, which way the wires are connected as to what makes the little parts of your body react when they see different or feel different things. Sexuality is, we're born this way. 
But also, again, let me draw this analogy even, a little even wider. Can you tell a man is circumcised by looking at him in the street? Unless his pants are super tight, unless he's wearing activewear? Generally, no. Does it change the way you would treat him at work? Does it make you refuse him service in your cafe? Would you have a problem if he was using the bathroom at the same time that you walk your child in there to pee? The answer, of course, is no. What, are you crazy? But would you allow a postal plebiscite to be conducted on your validity as a part of society based on whether you were circumcised or not? Would you stand for politicians whom you'll never meet and will probably never vote for? Would you stand for them saying horrible things about you and your kids on TV and radio and then to have, and then to, have to explain it to your worried children why they're being pointed and laughed at? Would you be okay if a stranger, complete stranger in another part of the country who's mashing like buttons on Facebook posts and returning a postal vote that denies you or even your son the same right as the rest of society just because of a decision they had nothing to do with? No, you bloody wouldn't. So don't make that decision for somebody else. Who I sleep with, this is me personally, who I sleep with has nothing to do with anybody else. So why should who someone else sleeps with or who loves someone or, or someone who sleeps with someone who has the same genitals as they do, why does that have anything to do with me? All I know is that that person, in my eyes, deserve, that person deserves the same rights to happiness and equality as I do. That's it. It's got fuck all to do with anyone. There's no business of anybody. All that matters is that we are ultimately as equal as we can be to each other. So, if you don't like same-sex marriage, it's okay. Don't marry someone with the same genitals that you have. But don't deny another person who will never have anything to do with you, who has no choice but to fall in love with someone who has the same genitals as they have. Don't deny them the right to happiness, the same rights that you enjoy. Don't deny them the right to recognition by society, the same recognition that you enjoy. Don't deny them the right to the same happiness or sadness. Shit, if they want to fall in love and break up, fuck, I'm on my second marriage. Why would I deny someone else that? Don't deny other people this. Check your enrolment. Check your enrolment. If you're in Australia, if you're an Australian citizen, if you can vote, check your enrolment. AEC.gov.au. I did it this morning. I did it just before I started recording this. It took me three minutes. I did it on my phone. You can hit pause and do it right now. AEC.gov.au govgov.au love is love and who are we to deny anyone the right to love and be recognized as equal we're not we don't thanks everyone for supporting the show um you're not only supporting the show by listening you plenty of people support through patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash osher thank you so much to all the people that are supporting there um i have a production uh, coordinator Haley Van Spagna, who helps things work out, and my audio producer Andy Ma, who makes everything sound good. I have to pay these two people to make these shows, and I'm not able to do it without the Patreon support. So thank you. If you do support on Patreon, you get exclusive episodes. That's what happens. You get exclusive episodes that no one else can hear that I make just for you, and they're all yours. Uh, a big, massive thanks to everyone that sent in a podsy this week, which is a photograph of what you're listening to as you listen to this right now. Uh, I got some cracking ones. I think. One of my favorite ever came in today. It was from Jessica, who took a photo out the front of the Australian film The Castle. Um, the family in the castle have a holiday home at a place called Bonnie Doon. And she took a photo from out the front of the Kerrigan's family home in Bonnie Doon. And in the front window, there's a pair of crossed jousting sticks and a punching bag hanging off the eucalyptus tree in the front yard. Glorious. Just glorious. I'm so happy that you took me there. I'm so lucky that you took me there. I got another email from someone. Uh, sent a photo of them packing for four months away to South America. What an exciting trip. Four months in South America right in the summertime. Damn, that's going to be good fun. 
Good, good, good fun. Thank you so much for sending all those in. You can get me on uh, email, send usher email at gmail.com, or you can always find me on Twitter or Snapchat or Instagram or wherever you want. Let me tell you about my guest. Ah, oh, what a fortuitous week. Morgan Kogel is the CEO of One Girl. You can find their website, onegirl.org.au. One Girl is a non-profit organization that are on a mission to educate one million girls across Africa. They believe that every girl has a right to an education. And um, they work predominantly across Sierra Leone and Uganda. Morgan has an interesting career that's also included working in prisons in Victoria, where she helped again in transforming lives, transforming lives of prisoners through education. Now, these two things alone are incredible reasons to listen to Morgan's story. She has a fantastic story to tell, but there is something else quite pertinent. And it was really fortunate that this came up. It's not the reason that I got her on the show, but it was freaking amazing that it just it turned out. Morgan is the adult child of a same-sex marriage. She has two mums. And we talk at length about her experience, what she felt growing up as a child, and what she feels now. Now, if you're worried about how things might turn out for children of same-sex marriage, if you're concerned for the welfare of other people's kids who aren't even born yet, have a listen to how Morgan describes her perspective of the situation. I hope it sheds some light on things for you. So while you listen to this, draw a glass of clean, safe water from a tap, which is probably four steps from where you're sitting right now. Maybe even visit a flushing toilet during this podcast and revel in the privilege that you and I have living in a modern society as we listen to Morgan talk about how she's trying to bring education to girls across the world and bring them opportunity that they otherwise might never have. If you like this conversation, let Morgan know. She's on Twitter at Morgan, K-O-E-G-E-L. And enjoy this conversation with Morgan Kogel. Hi, Morgan. How are you today? Doing well. Enjoying the cold in Melbourne. Are you up in Sydney? We are in <laughs> Sydney where it is deceptively cold. Uh, the sky mm. is blue, but the wind is frosty. We're here by the ocean, which is lovely. Um, it's hold on to the poo bag a little longer than you normally should when you're walking the dong because your hands are cold, cold. <laughs> oh, those are the worst days. Oh, man. Well, what I, a visceral description. I don't think I'm alone in doing this on a cold day. When you pick up the dog poo, you're like, it's kind of warm. You're like, it's gross, but my hands aren't so cold. <laughs> Man, all right. I uh, need to get a dog, clearly, to help me out with the Melbourne weather. Morgan, I, I, I recommend it highly. Your life will be way better <laughs> once a dog comes into your life. You sound like you're not, uh, that there's, uh, there's an interesting internationalism going on in your upbringing, Morgan. Where does your accent come from? There is certainly. I would love to cover up the accent. I, I try and do an Australian accent and it comes out like offensively Steve Irwin. So yeah. I've had to dial it back. But originally I'm from Ohio, which is in the Midwest of the USA. I've been here since I was nine years old and just can't drop it. That that I um I had a British accent for a long time because I was born in the UK to two refugee parents, but they both learned English as a second language. So they spoke very, very perfectly pronounced Oxford English. Mm. which I then had pretty much beaten out of me in high school. <laughs> so you beat it out of yourself no. here in Australia? What's the trick? Oh, no, it was beaten out of you. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. Yeah, I had an accent for uh, until until high school. Um, but then, uh, I don't know, it just went full Queensland. <laughs> I can I can hear that twang now. Um, oh, I can, I for do me, it's just... I do turn it on, Morgan, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I... I've heard that it's all about dropping the, the R's, you know, we are here. Exactly. Yeah. In the words of Tom Gleason, we don't even say the word R when we say the word R. <laughs> oh, that's very true. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we, we only say the letter R when it's in the beginning or the, or when it's only ever in the uh, beginning or the first, the first sound of each syllable. Right. The word Australian, we say the R because it start, it starts a syllable, Australian. Aust Australian. Yeah. Aust if, it, if it follows a hard, <laughs> if it follows a hard consonant, we say the letter R. But other than that, we don't even say, like, barbecue. We don't say the letter R in barbecue. Jeez. My uh, partner is, like, seven generations Australian, and he's never left the country but is coming with me to the States to meet family at the end of the year, and I know in advance that I'm going to be translating on his behalf for yeah. all the family members. Yeah, I, uh, I lived what, in America. Yeah, I lived in America for 10 years, and um, eventually I just had to adopt the accent because I got so bored of saying things twice. 
<laughs> like, oh, I'd like a glass of water. And they're like, what? Yeah. You have a wart where? <laughs> oh, water. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, you so, an American accent. Uh, it, well, yeah, it, it, yes. So tell me, um, when you came to Australia, you weren't very old. I'm guessing you didn't come alone, but if you did, that would have been awesome. Uh, <laughs> I'm guessing you you came as a part of a parental move. That's right. So my mum's job actually brought us to Australia. She moved here with uh, her company, and it was just such a big adventure for us. I remember thinking it was going to be exactly as Steve Irwin lives, that I was expecting everything to be very red, and perhaps people wouldn't be using spoons. Uh, I was quickly corrected upon arriving. Um, but it was a huge change from growing up in middle America in the early 90s. What, uh, what, what did your parents do? So I actually have really unusual family circumstances. I was raised by two moms, uh, one of whom is a lawyer and the other of whom is a uh, microbiologist. So uh, it is kind of unusual, not just in that it's like, you know, two strong women in these male-dominated industries, but obviously that I had lesbian parents in the early 1990s, which was almost unheard of, particularly in middle America. Uh, and which which mum brought you to Australia? So my biological mother uh, is who I moved with uh, here to Australia. But, you know, so much of who I am now and uh, kind of the story of how I've ended up as the CEO of the organization One Girl is starts way back then. You know, I get asked all the time, how are you this 25-year-old CEO? And the truth is that it starts way, way, way further back than the CV, than the educational background. It all goes back to being to being born to these two incredible women. Uh, because, you know, growing up, I had no idea that my family was unusual. I was incredibly loved and supported. And in fact, my father is a gay man who lived locally and had a partner himself. So I felt like I'd hit the parent jackpot. You know, I had four parents, best deal you could want. Uh, and they were incredibly highly educated and wanted that for me as well. When my mom decided to get pregnant, she uh, realized that her next door neighbor was a gay man with a PhD and said, hey, he'd make a great candidate. <laughs> thinking ahead. And so uh, from there, you know, I had these parents that really wanted to give me every opportunity at life. They sent me to a good school. I was loved. I was incredibly spoiled. Uh, and it didn't really occur to me until I was about five years old that I had an unusual family. And that was on the playground, as you'd imagine, hearing kids arguing. And one kid said to another kid, that's so gay. And I remember feeling it like a kick to my stomach of what does that mean? Does that mean they think gay is bad or gay is weird? Uh, and I really wanted to speak out about that. I wanted to tell them, no, you know, my parents are gay and it's fine. But I couldn't find those words. I, I couldn't, uh, I was scared of what they might think of me, of what they might say to me. And I felt myself shrinking back into a corner, unable to say anything. But in that moment, feeling that sick feeling in my stomach, I said, that's it for me. Whatever I'm going to do in life, I'm going to find my voice and have the ability to speak out about the things that matter to me. It's, it's okay not to speak out about those things when you're five, though, Morgan. <laughs> I was a pretty determined five-year-old. On my fifth birthday, I said, if it had a face, I'm not going to eat it. And my parents said, this will last two weeks, and here we are 20 years later, and it's still the same. So I was, I was one of those really determined kids. Really? So uh, full vegetarian or full vegan? Full vegetarian. Vegan at home, vegetarian out and about. It's the way to go. Wow. Wow, from the age of five. Mm, my fifth birthday, it was um, one of those things that everyone kind of around my parents were like, oh, come on, this is, this is not a real thing. This won't last. Uh, and as I've gotten older, it's developed and um, is a huge part of who I am. I'm sure. So even at five, I was just like, come on, let's, we got to save the world. We're going to save the whales. I always had a different project going for saving the world. Where did that come from? Uh, I think that part of it is... Uh, one, being raised in a climate with my parents where I was aware that there were people out there who disagreed with my life, but I felt very passionately that my life was okay and my parents were okay. And from a really young age, I think I had this sense that there are things that are wrong in the world and there are opinions that are hurtful and that we have the capacity to create that change. But on top of that, I think a big part was actually what my non-biological mother was doing. She was working as a lawyer and she'd come home at the end of the day and tell me her lawyerly stories or her PG version of the lawyer stories. And uh, she actually came and told me when I was really young, I said, I want to tell you a story from a few years ago when I worked as a defense attorney and she had fought death penalty cases 
of course, you know, we haven't had the death penalty in Australia for a long time, but Ohio still has it and certainly had it in the 90s. And uh, she told me the story of fighting and fighting and fighting for years to save this man's life. And eventually the judge did agree and, and saved his life. And I remember as a young person hearing that just being like, oh, my God, this woman got her law degree. She spoke out about something she believed in and she literally saved a dude's life. I've never heard anything as incredible as that. And it was just one more thing reinforcing in me that raising your voice can have like you know, really real consequences, really positive consequences. Was there any, I mean, aside from that moment in the schoolyard when you were five, was there any bullying as you kind of beca- became older? I think that something that kind of surprised me is moving to Australia. In many ways, I found it a lot more conservative than where I'd grown up in the States. Uh, and certainly the way that language was used, that I remember moving here and already in, in year four at a really young age, kids would say things like, oh, that's faggy. And, you know, we're not hanging out with that boy because he's gay. And that was kind of new as opposed to just uh, kids letting something slip that was a little bit hurtful or saying, oh, that's a bit weird. Here was kind of like some dramatic homophobia going on. And even all the way up in, in high school, I remember there was a teacher who was known to be a lesbian and never really even occurred to me that that was a topic of conversation. But there were girls who would say, I can't believe they let her teach us and that's disgusting. And I think right up until I was an adult, I was terrified of people finding out that my parents were gay. I thought that that would mean total ostracization. And just, I was really, really scared of that. Now in my adult life, I I sing it from the rooftops, loud and proud, happy to share it. But certainly throughout high school, uh, for a teenage girl who just wanted to be liked, that was way too scary. So what did you do when people asked you about your dad? I think for a long time in primary school, I had a pretty elaborate story of, I don't know how he had ended up staying in the States. But by the time I got to high school, I just refined it down to parents split, no biggie. And, you know, divorce was common enough that that wasn't a question that got followed up on. But I think that my fears were kind of reinforced that as much as I wanted to speak out about things, there is nothing scarier for a teenage girl than, you know, other girls thinking that she's a lesbian. Um, And that's a, a huge problem. And, you know, whenever people ask me about oh, but see, you have experienced disadvantage from having gay parents. And I say, yeah, only because of the social climate we've created. The first time I ever told anyone about my parents, I was 15, and the fr- my friend responded by asking, oh, does that mean you're a lesbian? And of course, that was just a way of you know, reinforcing that fear of, oh, shit, what are people going to think of me? And so I think really what we've done is create this environment in which you know, being open about those sort of things isn't possible because... People are just so scared of what that's going to mean for them for the next six or 12 years in school. Now, you can say, look, I don't want to talk about that, but I do want to, I, I have friends of mine who are, you know, who are together, married to women, and they have small children, but I've never had a chance to speak to an, a grown adult child of, of, of two women. So I, I would love to know from your perspective, or two men for that example, I haven't spoken with a grown adult child of two men either. In my own experience, when I was a teenager, there was, it was fairly, well, even younger, it was fairly evident that, you know, as I was about eight or nine, my sexuality was fairly obvious. Um, I might not have known how to act on it or whatever, but I could see the things that, um, you know, would make me feel funny in the tummy. And then those things kind of progressed as I became older. When it was I don't know, I'm just kind of guessing, how did your own sexuality eventuate and how did your own sexuality kind of, I don't want to use the word come out, but how did your own sexuality, <laughs> how did your own sexuality develop when you were in that um, scenario? Because I'm sure a lot of people would be interested to know if, you know, well, I don't want to catch the gay, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's a really interesting one. I, I don't get asked that often, but happy to speak to it, that I think for men, those things are defined at a much younger age. My best friend is a gay man and he has told me that he always knew inherently for as far back as he can remember. But for me, sexuality wasn't really a thing that could even be considered until I fully understood that stuff. You know, when I talk about uh, knowing my parents were gay at five years old, yeah, I understood kind of up in the ether, there was this thing called gay and my parents were gay, but you don't fully understand sex at that age. You don't understand sexual attraction. And so 
to me, it didn't have any correlation with, um, you know, that kind of feeling in your tummy or anything like that. It wasn't until I was much, much older that I think I understood what gay actually meant in that sense. And I'm talking like 10 or 11 or 12 even. Um, and I guess that would have been about the same age that I started to, um, have those thoughts myself. And I don't think I ever even considered that it would be a problem either way. And that's one of the things that is kind of the benefit of having uh, same sex parents is I knew that they would be inherently accepting of anyone I was going to bring home. Um, but just found throughout my teenage years that, yeah, I was really, really straight. Uh, and I think something that's quite unique in, in my whole family circumstances is that my father is a gay man. He's still with his partner of many, many years now. And my non-biological mother would undoubtedly identify as a lesbian, but she's been married in her life. And my biological mother has had relationships with men that I've been able to see. And so I think sometimes, you know, we think of sexuality as, you know, so cut and dry and all that sort of thing. And I've lived a life where I have seen every facet of that. Um, and I'm quite lucky that there's just total acceptance coming there. But it's just men for me, as much as I would love to say I could bat both ways and, you know, greater chance of finding true love if you can go both ways. But yeah, I'm, I'm really, what, what's fascinating about what you just said is that into this environment where whichever, whichever expression of human sexuality that wants to come out of you is accepted and embraced and enjoyed and, and uh, loved, that you've said yourself that, um, you know, there are, people who've been in same-sex relationships and then had a relationship with the opposite sex and then gone back to a same-sex relationship. And, you know, I, I wonder if if there was more acceptance, if those relationships would happen more. You know, I, I, I often wonder that, you know, like, and particularly now, just having you heard that, I'm like, I'm wondering if, if it was totally fine, would more people in between long-term relationships go, oh, I might try guys for a while or I might oh, try girls 100%. for a while. Yeah, hundred percent. And I mean, like, don't we see that in some sometimes people's you know secret fantasies or whatever, and some of the things that we fetishize or that um, people you know think about and tell partners after a long time, or maybe never even admit out loud. Yeah, hundred percent. I think if we created a different society where um, people weren't so pigeonholed, there would be way more exploration of that. Yeah, I wonder how much less sadness that then comes out in other ways could be avoided. Absolutely, and I think. You know, now in my adult life, and I mentioned before, my best friend is a gay man. And even just seeing the way that it affects him in his adult life, having grown up knowing he was gay, I think that all the time, that he'll go to cross his legs, catch himself and, you know, kind of do some man spreading, you know, kind of dominate the space, be as masculine as possible. Yeah. And that there is so much self-hatred in growing up in a society that says, nah, you've got to be this way. That's the way to make it work. I think we would live in a really different world without that. Yeah, I it it does, and I can't ever pretend to understand what it's like. But with gay men who I'm quite close to, when I see them behave one way in their own home, and then we go outside for coffee or whatever, and I'll see one of them go to grab the other's hand, and then someone come around the corner, and they both instantly let go of each other's hands. You know, still that stuff is just in them, and it just, it just breaks my heart. It breaks mm. my heart to see that. You know. Definitely. And I think what really stays with me is two things that, you know, on one hand, I want to say we are getting better and we are. And I know that because I have three parents who were gay and were rejected by their parents for being gay. So for us to be living in a society now where, you know, some of those videos going viral of kids coming out to their parents that are just beautiful, that we are celebrating that and we are having those conversations and we're making some headway. But we've got a long way to go because a lot of the conversations are around just the clear uh, inequalities like same sex marriage. And I don't want us to ever get to the point where that is legalized and we say, oh, done. That's it. That was all the problems. Yeah. No, we still have, you know, so much uh, going on in the background and, and so much kind of inherent discrimination yeah. that we need to own up to at the same time. It's most definitely not the end of the chapter. That is the beginning of the chapter of when. Absolutely. You know, and I just. God damn! I wish it would happen tomorrow. It just, mm. especially in in our in our country. Um, what superpowers do you have as a young woman that others might not have had that came from being raised by two academic women? I think it's a bit 
there's a lot of things that I am so lucky to have from that. I think uh, I was from a very young age, very determined to succeed and that every time I've experienced some little twinge of um, discrimination or being put out, that's, if anything, doubled me down on that desire to succeed. But also that I had two women who paved the way in male-dominated industries and, and showed me that that was okay and that was something I could pursue. From a really young age, I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to study law so that I could follow in my non-biological mother's footsteps and, and create this change. And that was never something that, even for a second, I thought was unattainable, that both of my mothers had pursued these unusual careers, had achieved amazing things. And, um, you know, there are so many women who would not pursue a career in science or, um, you know, some other kind of pursuit that they're passionate about because they haven't had a woman before them to show them the way. I had two. So I was incredibly lucky in that regard. And what about when it came to, to naming their daughter? Do you think they were thinking ahead? <laughs> So with the name Morgan, it's obviously an androgynous name, uh, it can be male or female. And um, when they found out they were pregnant with a girl, my mom's decided, hey, let's give her an androgynous name so that people won't know ahead of time if she's male or female. Someone could pick up her CV and not know, and she wouldn't experience that discrimination that they may have faced. And uh, I see that play itself out in my adult life, as ridiculous as it might seem. I'll go into meetings and... Um, People not having met me in the past will say, oh, you must be Morgan's assistant. And I'll be able to say, no, I'm, I'm Morgan herself, a little bit sexist. <laughs> and I think that that kind of idea of gender equality was with me from a really young age. But now I get to kind of celebrate in it in that it makes my negotiations with stakeholders a lot easier when they've erroneously expected me to be an old man. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. I'm not going to lie. It is an older guy's name. <laughs> Yep, and I'm happy to run with that so yeah. long as it gets me my way in the end. Yeah, like you don't you don't meet any any young 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 guys called Kevin or Graham. <laughs> you know, Graham is an old dude's name. It definitely is an old dude's name. Well, you never it's, meet a baby named Graham. <laughs> well, it's <laughs> it's it's uh, it suits you very well, Morgan. So through high school, was university always a thing that was uh, without question going to happen? Oh, 100%. I came from an incredibly privileged educational background, and uh, that's just one of those things that's assumed if you're lucky enough to be in a position where you get to go to a good school and where you have parents who are highly educated. So for me, I, I tracked on and uh, did two degrees at the University of Melbourne. I more recently finished my law degree. And that was something that definitely from a really young age was kind of assumed. Obviously, you said you were trying to save the whales from the age of five. Uh, what what are some of the more interesting campaigns that happened during your later high school years? Oh, gosh. There was the socks and jocks drive when I was in year 11. I remember finding out that uh, homeless people had trouble getting clean socks and underwear to wear. And so I made everyone at school bring um, socks and jocks for a day so that we'd be able to distribute those. And, gosh, it was everything from the can drive to – I. I'm embarrassed to admit that I at one stage did a semi-naked protest uh, for some fur stuff, uh, which hopefully there are no photos of on the internet these days. But it was everything I could get my hands on. I was driven. I was obsessed. I was ready to go. You know, at a, it was funny. At a really young age, I was told, oh, by the time you're grown up, there won't be these problems. They're all going to be fixed. You've missed out. And I remember at a really young age, being so jealous that my mom had gotten to be this bra-burning, anti-war feminist. And I was like, man, I should have been born in the 50s. I could have protested. <laughs> but here we are, and man, is there a lot of work to do. Did you go to protests with your parents? Oh, definitely. They had me along at a young age. And um, you know, now when I get to go along with them, there's always that sense of nostalgia of remembering from a really young age being uh, the littlest girl with a, a picket sign. So it's it's one thing to raise, you know, to bring get everyone to bring socks and jocks here to a high school, um, but when once you hit university, you're able to do these things with a lot more scale. What were you know? When did you start to realize that you might actually be able to wield some changing power? To be honest, I don't think I ever doubted it, and that sounds terrible. But from a really young age, I was just like, "Nah, this is going to happen. We're going to create change," and I have consistently in my adult life, put my hand up for things before I was ready for them, before most people would assume that it was appropriate. 
And that is the product of from a really young age, believing that individuals can create change. I live my life by this Jane Goodall quote that what you do makes a difference and you have to decide what kind of difference you want to make. And to me, that is so simply put that we have decision making power every single day. doesn't matter how young you are. doesn't matter where you're living. You make decisions in your everyday life that affect the world we live in, particularly if you've been as uh, advantage as had as much advantage as I have in life, that growing up in Australia, the decisions we make every day affect the world that we live in. And for me, that was getting myself into a job where I could create real change and feel proud of positive difference at the end of the day. Did you see other people that you were going to university with, university with um, seek out careers that were the, the fastest path to owning a boat or the fastest path to, oh, I'm going to go skiing in the Alps every winter. Very first day at Melbourne Law School, we were asked why we were there. The dude sitting next to me was like, oh, I want to be Harvey Specter. I want the fastest car. I want the sexiest watch. He dropped out two days later. So apparently that was not the right ambition to be in law school. But that doesn't mean that it's not an environment where incredibly privileged people aren't using that as the fastest way to having a lot of cash. But that wasn't what was driving you? Oh, definitely not. I now get to speak a lot about my experience of being a law student and and the role that I'm in. And I'm often the to- like the token not-for-profit person on panels. And I remember not too long ago, I was on a panel and um, the guy sitting next to me was kind of listening to what I had to say about what you should do with your life and, and why it's important to create a positive difference. And a silence kind of fell and he said, or you can just go out and make a lot of money. That's valid as well. <laughs> and there was like a second there where I was going to let it slide. And then I kind of turned and I was like, you know what? Actually, no, I, I am going to chase that one up. You know, That's not good enough as a motivation. That, that shouldn't be a reason that you are pursuing higher education because you just want to make a lot of money, burn it all. For me, it was always, I want to take this education, this opportunity that so few people get, and then use it to create as much positive difference as possible. There's many different ways that positive difference can appear and be manifested. Um, what drew you to education being the thing that you wanted to help people achieve and have access to? You know, ending up at Melbourne Law School, I was surrounded by people who were incredibly similar to me in terms of socioeconomic group, in terms of educational background. And I'm so grateful that my law degree gave me the opportunity to work outside um, that kind of environment. And for the first time in my life, I got to meet people who had had a really different life than my own. I ended up working in the magistrate's courts, uh, in the special circumstances list, which is effectively a way of dealing with fines for people who have experienced homelessness, drug addiction, mental illness. And I also ended up working in prisons across Victoria, uh, which is an unusual environment to be in as a 20 year old woman. But it was also a really pivotal moment in showing me how I was going to use this law degree, that I was giving these legal education seminars. I was um, telling the guys about their rights. I was helping them with minor legal problems. And uh, I remember one of my very first sessions, I was presenting how jury impanelment happens, and a guy asked, what's a jury? And it really hit me that perhaps I was in an environment unlike the one that I had come from, that In fact, only 7% of men who are in prison in Australia have a year 12 or equivalent education. 60% don't have functional literacy and numeracy to take part in the workforce. And this really sunk home for me after I'd done a whole bunch of sessions. This guy, Jamie, had been back again and again and again, and he was really loving myself. I was thinking, wow, I'm good at this. He keeps coming back. He must love my sessions. And I was handing out pamphlets and didn't have enough. And Jamie actually turned to me and said, oh, you know what, miss? You can take mine back. I actually can't read. And I just felt sick to my stomach of realizing, of course, he's coming back to my sessions. I'm pointing to slides he can't understand. I'm handing him things he can't read. And it was that moment that helped me fully appreciate that my capacity to read and write and speak the way I'm speaking right now is the product of the education I've had and that not everyone has that opportunity. And are you, so you were, how did you even end up in the, in the prison in the first place? You're your beautiful 20-year-old blonde girl. And suddenly, I can only think it, it looks like Clarice walking into Silence of the Lambs. Um, what, how did you even end up there? Oh, gosh. It was a, a really amazing opportunity with an organization called Prison Legal Education Assistance that tries to kind of uh, fill this gap 
that is created for people who are in prison, that we like to think that people go to prison to be rehabilitated. But um, the reality is that there isn't all that much money for that to be a priority, that uh, there isn't real accessibility of support for people to be able to work their way through their situation. Something that was really interesting about going into this role, I thought here I was going in to give these grand seminars on how the law works. Most of the time, I was literally explaining to guys what they'd been charged with, literally for them to understand what were the potential sentencing outcomes, what did that crime even mean, and what was going to happen next. So what was it going to look like when they were walked into a courtroom that the educational level was so low and the accessibility of legal support so low as well that it was really kind of a base level role in a way that I never expected but I'm so glad to have had that opportunity because I think studying the law, you start to think, oh, this is it. You create change through the law. You fight for people in court. And the law is constantly asked to answer for that. You know, why are there so many indigenous people in prison? Why are there so many people with uh, acquired brain injuries in prison? When the reality is that those problems uh, start so much earlier back, that that's an educational problem, that that's an opportunity problem, that people have ended up in the criminal justice system in the first place. So- it was your opportunity to hopefully, I mean, I guess you, you were trying to see a way of maybe intervening to stop someone then coming back through. I mean, if you're seeing a guy in his 20s who doesn't even know what a jury is, that doesn't give you much hope that he's not going to be back there in another nine months or six months. Of course not. And the reality is that, you know, 35% of guys are homeless in the month before they end up in prison. Of course, you're going to find yourself interacting with police more if you're in a situation with your homeless. Once you get out of prison, you have you know, limited support from Centerlink to then try and find a, a steady address, which you undoubtedly can't afford. Uh, it's hard to get a job because now you have a criminal record. And so we act all surprised when we see in Victoria that 44% of guys are back within two years. Why would that be surprising? What opportunity is new to you after prison? that you have to turn your life around and to make things be different. Uh, to me, we have so much work to do in diversion programs and education to, to start acknowledging those realities rather than just this rhetoric of, of kind of criminal justice. What's the economics of it? What's the cost of imprisoning someone for a year versus the cost of giving them the skills and perhaps short-term housing to, and to build up a bit of momentum so they don't end up homeless again? Yeah, because it costs us hundreds of dollars per day per prisoner to keep them in. When you think about that, you need to provide not only the accommodation and feeding someone, but the security around that. It's massive, as is running the criminal justice system of holding a trial of all of the different people that have to be involved in that process. Time and time again, they've shown that the economics are by far and away sitting with diversion programs with more investment in education. But that's not a sexy sell for a government. And I get that. And that's tough that the last 25 years, governments have had to be tougher and tougher and tougher on crime to get elected. So of course, we end up in the, in the predicament that we're in now. But that doesn't mean that as the public, we can't say, hey, let's get educated around this and actually not put that pressure on the polys to kind of make it go in that direction, if that makes sense. It's, not, it's, it's hard to get reelected if you've got a suburb where, or an electorate where crime is on the rise to go... It's goats. It's okay. We're going to open the classrooms at nighttime and help these men learn how to read. <laughs> People want to hear them. No, we're going to chase them down and lock them up. That's what they want to hear. Yeah, because I mean, we watch a lot of Law and Order and CSI <laughs> on television, and, and that's who's in prison, right? It's just all oh. those bad, evil men who confess their crime at the end of the episode. Oh no, it's not like that though. <laughs> that's not how it ends up. So, I mean, you know, ob obviously that. That was a big, a big calling for you to 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 do that work. But um, a lot of the work that that you do now uh, is kind of based not even towards this country. When did you start getting the idea of wanting to help education in other countries, and why did you choose another country to 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 put one girl into action around? So once I'd had my realization that you know the law wasn't my way of creating change, that education was that vehicle. I was doing what all good law students would be doing on a Monday night, and I was scrolling through Facebook, and I came across this advertisement for a role at One Girl. They were looking for their new CEO, and here I was in this moment in time where I'd said, nah, my way to create change is education, and on top of that, you know, all my experiences around gender equality, I'd previously been a young female CEO. I had these incredible female role models, 
And here was an organization whose mission was to educate 1 million girls across the developing world. I had never heard anything so incredible. I said, yes, that is it. I watched this ad and I said, that's my job. And my partner said, what are you talking about? You know, you have a job. I was like, you don't understand. That is my job. I was so set on it the moment that I saw this organization and understood how aligned their mission were with me. And what was it about the workplace that you, once you went and checked it out, that you thought, oh, this is good too. I can, because you can't, you know, you can't make change when, you know, the workplace is, is in a schmozzle. What was it about the workplace that made you want to work there? One Girl is a female-led, female-focused development organization. And that's amazing that our team is not by design, but just by merit, all women in Australia. And that was something really incredible to walk in and find this space of women working collaboratively to create a difference for women. That the whole mission behind One Girl, the whole focus was looking at where are the places on earth that it is worse to be born a girl. In the countries we work in, girls are more likely to be sexually assaulted than they are to attend high school. They're more likely to be married than they are to attend high school. And those are things that fundamentally everyone in the office has said no to. They have given up potential other careers and other areas and said, no, this is too important not to be giving my time and my emotional energy to. And so it's incredible to get to work with people who are so like-minded every day. I've had a lot of jobs and met a lot of incredible people along the way, but to be united in motivation, oh, well, that culture eats experience, it eats good pay, all of that. The culture is so much more important. And why is it you, I mean, a lot of the other stuff that you've done through your whole career had all been been very local focused, very stuff uh, either within uh, your suburb or your city or your state. Why did you want to, what drew you to focusing to a problem in a part of the world that you don't even live? I think that, you know, whenever we talk about kind of like, oh, let's solve problems in our own backyard first. I understand that and I understand why people feel that way. But for me, when you're thinking about equality or social justice or the way the world should look, for me, that's a matter of just saying, hey, we're all human beings. Like, why does it matter where you were born? Literally, the opportunities I've had in my life, the education I've had is because I won the birth lottery. If I were born in most other countries on earth, I would not have had these opportunities. And so to me, there's no reason why a girl in Sierra Leone or a girl in Uganda, the countries we work in, shouldn't have those same opportunities. Uh, And in those two countries, at the time that we started working in Sierra Leone, it was the poorest country on earth. It's still very low in the metrics. Both countries just have these incredibly heartbreaking statistics about the reality for girls, about the number of girls who get to attend school, about your likelihood of being married at a really young age, being illiterate, having more children than you're able to control. And that, to me, is a reason to focus on the opportunity that exists there to create change for women. Have you been over? Have you gone to visit? Yes. Last year, I was there November, December of last year, getting to visit some of our programs, get to see it firsthand. And, you know, as much as I'm a very logical person, I know the statistics, I understand what poverty looks like, experiencing it, being amongst the girls, getting to have those conversations, it's life-changing. You can't go back from that. In, um, in recent years, certainly after the, you know, people would be familiar with the Coney 2012 uh, thing that happened a couple of years ago, the idea of the, the young, educated, left-leaning white person swinging in on a rope and turning up in Africa with, with money is, uh, it's, it's kind of familiar. Um, you know, how, how do you look at that? And how do you look at avoiding, you know, you know, I won't say the name of the charity, but there are some charities that put on very, very large, very, very fancy events, raising squillions of dollars. And there's accusation of like, what, are you doing this so you feel better about your white guilt? Or are you doing this because you want to help people eat? You know, what's, I guess, you know, my question is, is like, how do, how do you avoid this idea of, how do, how do you avoid perhaps Oh, condescending or patronizing or, 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 or talking down to, um, uh, how do you make, let these people maintain their dignity? I think the two big problems that sometimes the development organizations have are kind of the, the white guilt and then the white savior kind of complex and also a bit of poverty porn. And let me explain that, that poverty porn, this idea of, um, 
images that shock you, that horrify you, that make you feel sick when you see them, they are incredibly affecting, effective at fundraising. They help charities do their job well, that charities are then able to pull a lot of money in and put them into the cause. I understand why charities want to do that. The white savior element is exactly what you're describing, you know, this idea of you know, a white person coming in and saving the day. And it's incredibly problematic. It presents people not as people. It creates an us and them mentality. It allows us to separate from uh, the people that you want to work with to create change. And as an organization, as one girl, that's something that we work so hard to avoid that people often pop onto our website or they, they see our work and they say, hang on, you're telling us all these really damning statistics, but every single girl I see on your website is smiling. Like, you know, how are you talking about these horrible things? And that's, that's exactly right. We have a rule that we will never use guilt to sell. That's in our manifesto. Guilt is not a way to create change. It, it maybe makes people donate today, but they feel a little sick about it later. On top of that, we're not representing numbers or statistics. We're representing girls as they are, as the challenge that they faced and the person that they are. And we will never, ever use a photo, which we wouldn't be proud of if it were us. So whenever we're sense checking a photo, we look at it and say, would I be proud to be represented this way? Is this who I am? And whenever you look at, you know, poverty porn images or images that evoke all this guilt and sadness, that's not something that person would be proud to show. And so that's not how they should be represented because they're human beings and they have the same expectations and right to dignity that we do. And so while I'm sympathetic to how the development world has ended up in this predicament of having these type of photos, I'm really proud that as an organization, we reject that entirely. And we constantly question ourselves about how can we do it better and avoid falling into those traps. And the it's one thing to raise money, but it's another thing to put that stuff into action. At the, at the business end of, um, of what you do, of what One Girl does, uh, how much do you involve the local community? How much empowerment is there at the other end where the, where the money comes out of the bank account and starts doing the work? It's complete. So our team here in Australia are Australians and our team in Sierra Leone are Leoneans, which makes entire sense. There are people, there's an economy there that needs to be stimulated. There are people there who need jobs. We hire local people to do local work. We partner with local community-based organizations. And our expectation is always that the materials that we use in building toilet blocks, for example, at schools will be local materials that the engineers, that the plumbers, that the teachers that we work with to create educational change are going to be local people. So we create those opportunities. There's so much volunteerism going on now, this idea of, you know, you can kind of parachute in someone who has a bit of experience from another country. And there's a reason for that. It makes those people be more passionate. It makes them want to be involved in that charity, but it also doesn't stimulate the local economy. It doesn't create those opportunities. And so we are always working on how can we do good community development along the way. You mentioned that you're raising money to educate kids, but you're building toilet blocks. Why toilet blocks? <laughs> that is a very good question. So, you know, our focus is we're unashamedly focused on girls. We're focused on girls' education. And part of that is putting girls back in school. Through our scholarship program, we send girls back to school or otherwise out of it. But that's not the end of the challenge. Menstrual health and hygiene is a massive barrier for girls in the developing world. It's an unsexy problem to talk about, but to be honest, I get really excited about biodegradable pads. I spend a lot of time talking about biodegradable pads. We focus on providing menstrual health and hygiene education to girls, as well as a way that they're able to manage their periods um, safely and privately, uh, because we find that girls miss up to a week of school every month because of their periods in the countries that we work in. And, you know, look, when I was in school, if my mom had told me I could skip school because I had my period, would have been stoked. But makes it pretty hard to keep up with your male classmates. And there are really severe health consequences if you have to manage your period with kitchen sponges, with tree bark, with old rags that have been torn into pieces and never really get clean and never really get dry because you don't have access to clean water and you can't afford soap. So for us, there are kind of these fundamental steps we can create, such as making sure there's a toilet block at a school, such as making sure that girls in school have access to pads that break down and drop toilets that we know makes their attendance better and creates better outcomes. That is, it's, anyone listening to this, you've just, I mean, it's one thing to provide education and people can understand teachers and that, but 
to try and imagine this incredibly privileged life we have in Australia. And I'm not saying there are parts of Australia where the conditions are similar to what you've described. There is no question about that. There are parts of our Indigenous communities um, where conditions are, are not great at all. However, the, the, the vast majority of mainstream uh, non-Indigenous Australians just take for granted that there's a flushing toilet around every corner and that there is clean water out of every tap. Um, this idea of I'm going to have to miss a week of school because I don't have any pads and I'm going to get sick or some awful infection that's going to keep me home or possibly kill me because I haven't got access to hygiene is so beyond anybody's comprehension. You know, that's, uh, that's, that's really, really interesting once you take these things that we take for granted out of the equation, how much the game changes when you try to put yourself in their place. Yeah, something that I, I always really love is actually having those conversations about let's talk about what it's like to get to school in one of these environments because it's so simple to just kind of from afar say, oh, yeah, pay tuition, done. Okay, tuition's paid, but what about the books that somebody needs to study? What about the fact that they can't afford to have a lunch while they're at school so it's really hard to focus? Then when you get into the stuff about periods, particularly Imagine trying to manage your period with some damp cloth that you haven't been able to clean properly and you're walking several kilometers to get to school. You can imagine how these barriers just grow and grow and grow until it becomes too hard and where it becomes easier for um, a girl, for example, to be married when she's 11 or 12 or 13 to a man who's much older than herself so that she's able to have enough food to eat. And you know, I've got a 13-year-old girl and she's, um, she's home sick at the moment. She, I took her to the doctor last night and the doctor's like, nah, it's an awful virus. It's going around. You can't go back to school this week. And I'm thinking back to my 13-year-old self, excellent. She's like, <laughs> I'm going to miss so much school. I'm going to be so behind. She's seeing how much she wants to learn, seeing how annoyed she gets when she doesn't get what she wants out of her classes. I can't imagine what it would be like to be that and then see, well, I guess, I guess I'm just going to have to go and marry this man three times my age um, because otherwise I'm going to go hungry. It's unthinkable here. It's, you know, I give a lot of talks in schools. I talk to uh, girls who are the same age as the girls that we work with in Sierra Leone. And it's, it's impossible to comprehend if you've grown up in a society like Australia, how you could have to make those decisions or how your parents would have to make those decisions. And I was really struck when I was over there um, in December last year. I, I met a girl at a school named Fatmata and was talking to her about uh, what she loved about being back in school. She'd been out for a period of time. She was living with just her grandmother. Both her parents died during Ebola. And she was able to be brought back into school as a result of our education programs. And uh, I was asking her about what she wanted to do when she finished school. And she told me, oh, I want to study creative writing. I want to be a journalist. And I asked her, oh, why? Why is that appealing to you? And she said, I want to be able to learn how to express myself so that I can explain to other people the things that I have seen and the things I've overcome. And I actually had to turn away from talking with her for a second because in her, I saw myself at 14 or 15. I saw my vision for the future. And I was so struck that it doesn't matter where you are in the world, that fundamentally we are all human beings. We all want the same thing. We all have dreams for what our future could be. And wasn't this incredible to be talking to a girl whose dream just so happened to be one where she could express herself and make things better for her community. And that really touched me because it made me reflect on how easy it has been for me to achieve my dreams, how easy it's been for me to get to this point. And that quite possibly for her, it won't be and she won't get there but that at the very least, here is a girl who is empowered and has the opportunity to be safe in school every single day, to be protected from uh, being forced into marriage and um, falling pregnant too young, that she has every opportunity to work towards that. What's the, what's the biggest misconception, do you think, about a place like Sierra Leone? I mean, to the outsider who's just a, a regular suburban Australian, it's just another one of those places where the brown people have flowers on their faces and everyone is wearing clothes that look like it came from the Vinnies. Um, what, what's happening in the football? Change channels. Um, what's, what's, what's the place actually like? 
I think that there's two big misconceptions that always get me that, um, and I often like to pose this. I'll, I'll pose a question to you, Asher. Hit me. How many countries are there in Africa? Oh, there's a lot. I'm going to say 113. It's actually 52. So you're okay. pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I think that the point that I make there is that people talk about Africa. This is how it is in Africa, and Africa's like this. And yeah, no, yeah. like, you know, Africa's a lot of places. It's like being like Australia, New Zealand, just exactly the same. Australia, Papua New Guinea that the people are different depending on where you are and um, the the environment is different, The everything is different. And I love that about going to Sierra Leone and people identify as like, no, I'm, I'm Leonian and um, uh, identify as I'm from SL, I'm not from Africa. And so I think that that's one really big misconception is kind of that homogenization of, of uh, the continent. But beyond that, I think there's a really quick instinct to judge that people are like oh how terrible they hate their daughters they hate girls they don't want them to go to school no it's not like that at all that if you were desperately impoverished if you couldn't afford to feed your children and you were making this choice of which of my six children will i send to school then you can understand why in pretty much any society there might be an emphasis of sending a boy to school he's going to be able to earn more money he's going to be able to pull money into the family and then on the other hand of marrying off your daughter who's 11, well, at least she's going to be fed now because there's somebody else who's able to Mm. look after her. That there isn't a hatred of women. There isn't a feeling that women are so inferior. It's fundamentally just a lack of opportunity that creates that climate. So I mean, for for me, that's the two really big misconceptions. But Sierra Leone as a country is incredible and it's beautiful. It takes you 48 hours to get there. So I can't tell people to run off and take a holiday. But it is... Uh, an amazing place and so worth seeing if anyone gets the opportunity. Now, I guess that, you know, in the same way that we would say, oh, why don't they just, you know, wash their hands under the tap? There is no tap. Why, we might be thinking, oh, why, how could a parent allow their daughter to marry someone in their 30s? Well, if it's that or the kid's not going to be able to eat, that's a shitty decision to make. Oh, yeah. And you can understand why people end up in a bind and people uh, end up making decisions they wouldn't necessarily stand by. As an organization, we've had examples where we've had to uh, negotiate with fathers because their daughters were set to be married to someone who was three, four, five times their age. And through negotiation, been able to say, look, if we commit to um, making sure she has a scholarship, that she's able to graduate from high school, will you call off this marriage? And the answer is always yes. Through those kind of community conversations, absolutely. When the opportunity is given, the answer will be yes. And we get total buy-in from community elders, from fathers, from mothers, from guardians in sending girls back to school because everyone recognizes that education is an opportunity to lift her out of the situation she's in. An incredible quote came through recently from a girl who had been through our program and we'd asked her, what does education mean to you? And she said, now people in my community see me as a person of value. And I thought that was such an incredible sentiment that, you know, we like to think that everyone has value. And of course she does. But through being literate, uh, through being one of very few literate people in her community, she was able to be recognized, be seen, be heard by other people in her community. And that to me is incredible. What are some ways that people here in Australia can help? what you do with one girl? I think the first thing that everyone needs to do is, is get informed on the issues. You know, we've talked about some of the complexity of girls' education. So I would love if everyone had the opportunity to pop onto our website, which is www.onegirl.org.au. But the huge way we see Australians get involved, particularly at this time of year, is through our Do It in a Dress campaign. Yeah. And it's this uh, really simple idea. A lot of people have seen it before. Of, uh, we have people, regardless of their age, regardless of their gender, throw on a school dress, which in the countries we work in represents empowerment, represents education. Then pick a challenge, raise some money with their family and friends, and do their challenge in a school dress. We see people jump out of airplanes in a school dress, go snowboarding in a school dress. Last year, I foolishly told my family and friends, I'll run an extra kilometer for every $100 you donate. Ended up running 25 kilometers on my 25th birthday, instantly regretted my decision. But nonetheless, it's a really fun campaign to be a part of. People are empowered to do 
things they wouldn't normally expect when they throw on that school dress. And does this happen on a particular day or does it happen over a course of a month? So we've just launched and it happens across October. October is the Get Dressy Month. So people uh, normally sign up now at www.doitinadress.com and then they're able to raise a bit of money. So for example, $300 is what it costs us to educate a girl for a year. So people often set themselves as a target, like I'd like to raise enough to educate a girl for a year. And then if they do, they're able to do their dressy challenge over in October. That That is that is remarkable. So does your birthday uh, occur in October, does it? <laughs> Just by chance, actually. Okay. So uh, my birthday is the 15th of October, and I always end up doing something dressy right on my birthday. So uh, last last year you ran just a little more than a half marathon. What are you going to do this year? Oh, God. I'm being asked to make that decision already. I have a, a staff member who escalated too quickly. She jumped out of an airplane in her first year. So now she's diving with sharks in a school dress this year, and I'm afraid that I've stuck myself in that same position, that it's going to escalate too quickly. Um, but this year, I think I'm going to ask my family and friends to dare me to do something in a dress. So for every hundred dollars donated they can give me a different challenge to try out in my school dress that sounds pretty good i wonder how far i could ride uh, i'm just thinking what kind of bicycling could i get away with in a school dress the photos would be so great that i feel like it would incentivize you to just go further in the school <laughs> dress <laughs> would be would be pretty special um Morgan, it's been really great to speak with you today. Thank you so much for not only sharing what you shared about Wongo, but to be so open about what it was like for you growing up as a kid, I'm sure this is the first time that many, many people have heard what it's like to grow up with parents who are the same sex um, as an adult. Um, and I really, really, really hope we've managed to maybe shine a little light into that corner, especially in, in this time in our country. I hope so too. I think that in the uh, same-sex marriage debate, there's always the "what think of the children" kind of reaction, and I and I say, yes, please think of me. I'd love to tell you how great my childhood was. So I definitely <laughs> hope that's people's impression. Ah, uh, you're a gem, Morgan. Have a fantastic day. Thank you so much for your time. No, thank you for yours, Osher. All Thanks right. a bunch. That was Morgan Kogel. If you liked that conversation, follow her on Twitter. Let her know you heard her here. She's on Twitter, Morgan, K-O-E-G-E-L. Let her know that you heard her. And um, as we were talking before, the conversation with Morgan, make sure you either enroll to vote or change your enrollment address to your current address, particularly if you're on the move, particularly if you're in South America for four months. Um, if you're overseas right now, uh, you need to get on that link quick sticks. That's going to close down in just a couple of days. So make sure you get on there now and register to um, get your vote in from overseas. AEC.gov.au. You can do it in a couple of minutes. You can do it right there on your phone that you're listening to this podcast on. Thank you so much for the support throughout the week. Thanks for all the emails and Twitter and stuff that I got. It's always great to hear from you. Thanks for all the pods you photographs. You are all legends. Thank you so much for listening. It's a highlight of my week to get to do this show, and I'm really grateful that I get to be a part of, of your week as well. A big thank you to Andy, my audio producer, and Haley, my production coordinator, for organising me and making sure this show happened this week. It was a tricky one this week, but thank you, guys. Until next week, thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next one. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.